0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area.
1: I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to Leviticus chapter 2, and I want to read uh, the first two verses of this chapter but our study is the entire chapter which is the instruction for the meal offering so if you look there in your bibles at leviticus chapter two and verse number one and will in and when any i'll get it here a second here and when any will offer a meat offering and that's a meal offering or a grain offering and When any will offer a meat offering unto the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil upon it, and put frankincense thereon, and he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, and he shall take thereout his handful of flour thereof, and of oil thereof, with all the frankincense thereof. And the priest shall burn the memorial of it upon the altar, to be an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord." Nearly every morning when I get up, I, I start this way, I, I read the Bible, I review uh, Sunday sermons, then I read several blog posts that are written by Reformed authors, although I'm not Reformed, I, I do enjoy reading some of those, and a few weeks ago I read one written by Joel Beakey about the Puritans, and he explained why we shouldn't try to preach like Puritans. At least in the develop of, development of our sermons, uh, there is a significant difference in the background of education of the Puritans uh, two or three hundred, three or four hundred years ago, and a difference in their educational system than ours, and so the development of their thoughts in their sermons are, are often difficult for modern readers, modern church people to understand. The Puritans are, were noted for spending copious amount of time on a text. Uh, they might preach 10, 20, 30, maybe even 40 sermons from one uh, verse of Scripture. And as I read their sermons, I'm fascinated by them, and uh, they're a very good exercise in how to work through a text to get its meaning. And I did understand Beeky's point about this, and, uh, and he did say in a, in a follow-up post that there are other ways in which we should try to be like the Puritans. Well, back in February, we discussed making a banner for this series to put on our website and uh, also out front of the church. And I told Brian that I thought uh, maybe we shouldn't go to the expense of putting a banner out front because this series was going to be a short one and we probably wouldn't need it. And he said, no, I think we ought to put one up because these series tend to be a little bit longer than you think that they're going to be. So... Here we are in the fourth message on just the meal offering, and we've had all these messages before this. And this is really the tough part that I have. uh, I really have trouble with this, and that's, where do you stop? I mean, there's just so much here, and I don't want to kill you with the subject, but at the same time, I don't want to shortchange you and leave you short of understanding of what the Scriptures are telling us here. Now, the Old Testament texts captivate me, and since... Each one of these offerings and the Old Testament texts point to Christ. I can't help but go as far as I can in explaining the richness of His character and and the deep meaning of His work in redemption. And if there was ever a time for us to preach Christ from a text, this would be it. And when Paul spoke of the reason that the Old Testament texts are preserved for us, he says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, Now all these things happen unto them for in samples... And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. And here we are now as Christians in the last days, and the world is in desperate need of revelation of Jesus Christ. And we have opportunity to find out more about Him if we'll just mind the Scriptures to find out these things about Christ. There isn't much Bible preaching in churches any longer and I want people to know that the Briam Baptist Church is a church that is not afraid to preach the Bible. That we want to spend our time in the Scriptures. And that we are a historical body of Christians that still preach like Puritans. And if that doesn't resonate with the feel-good crowd, then sorry. Preaching Christ is more important than satisfying them. We don't run from the Bible. And we believe... We need it in today's world. There's never a time when the world needed the preaching of Christ more than it does today. Churches need to get away from man-centered preaching. And many of our churches are stuck in that mode because they talk a whole lot more about what we do for God than what Christ has done for us. He's done everything for us. Ultimately, Folks like that teach that our acceptance with Christ is more dependent upon what we do for Him than what He does for us. Now, in our discussion of the of the meal offering, we discovered this offering has many moving parts to it. The offering is not about atonement, that is not in the restricted sense in which we think of a penal substitute for sin. It's not the purpose of this offering, but rather it is described in Scripture as a sweet savor offering which pictures the life of Christ, the perfections of Christ, that Christ's character is without flaw, and that his life was always pleasing to the Father. So this evening we're going to continue with that, with the second part of our outline, which is the symbolism that's found in this offering. And there are a variety of ingredients, uh, and each of these has some significance as it relates to the uh, different aspects of Christ's character. And so I'll repeat very briefly the ones that we've studied thus far, The first thing that we see in that offering is there is fine flour, and we learn that that stands for the well-balanced life of Christ, that this is a picture of the evenness of his life, that is in all, all phases of his life for an equilibrium, so that he wasn't too much of one thing and not enough of another. He wasn't overbearing, neither was he underwhelming. And like grain that is uh, subjected to an extended period of grinding and sifting until it becomes smooth, silky smooth, without any lumps, that is a description of Christ's life. He was daily subjected to grueling tests, and yet he maintained his composure and went about doing the Father's will without any complaint, without any failure. And though he was finally rejected by men... You never stop being loving and compassionate towards all people. The offering we see is also made with oil. Oil stands for the anointed life of Christ. Repeatedly, the chapter emphasizes the use of oil. It just keeps bearing down on that symbol. We saw that over and over again in many different verses. And it must be there because the oil, the oil in the offering is the symbol of the Holy Spirit in Christ's life. He was sanctified as God's choice. He was anointed, he was preordained before the foundation of the world to give his life as a ransom for sin. The Holy Spirit was always with him in full measure in his humanity. He didn't rely on his divine nature to to help him, but he lived as a man. He lived as you and I live. He couldn't do anything for the Father without the help of the Spirit. And so, he depended on Holy Spirit power, just as you and I must depend on the Spirit's power. But There's a difference, of course, between us and him, and that is he was completely yielded in all things, in everything. He yielded to the Spirit, we're not. He was perfectly obedient, and we're not. That makes a huge difference in how we react and what we can do, and, of course, the fact that we have a sinful nature, that's a tremendous hindrance to us. Now, thirdly... The offering included the sweet smell of frankincense. And frankincense represents the pleasing life of Christ. When frankincense is burned, it puts off a pleasing odor. Uh, When Jesus went through the furnace of trials, when the pressure was on him, it didn't spoil him. He never wilted under that oppression. And so he was reviled, but yet he never acted like a wounded animal. He didn't reach out and try to bite anybody. Oh, he went through all those things. He handled all those things. And instead, he increased in wisdom and in favor. He was full of grace and truth. The Scripture says there was a sweetness in his life, a kind of fragrant perfume that's pleasing to everybody or was to everybody that interacted with him. Those who hated him, hated him without a cause. In other words, they had to muster hatred in him uh, for him because there was there was nothing in his disposition that would cause it and then i might note this again that frankincense was very costly it was hard to obtain frankincense in the desert in the wilderness of sinai and they wouldn't have had it unless they brought it out of egypt with them or perhaps they had bought bought it on the as traders would come through in their trade routes in that particular area uh one author noted, though, that the costliness of the perfume of frankincense reminds us that no matter what it cost, pleasing God is always worth the price. When the going is tough, when you think that, think that you can't handle another day of ministry, preachers often feel this way, you, you can't handle another day of ministry, there's all kinds of disappointments, it's a heavy burden to you, and, and you wonder, are all these hardships worth it? And the answer to that question is yes, a thousand times yes it 's always worth it, as that song says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus, so pleasing God, that brings the richest of rewards and Paul, a man who was very well acquainted with trials and sufferings, wrote in romans eight eighteen for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, and Jesus modeled that same hope of what holding out faithful brings in, in isaiah 53 verse 11 he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities and in hebrews 12 too, looking unto jesus the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of god so the suffering of Christ did certainly gain something for him. It gained the people for his name. And pleasing God meant that he would be exalted forever and then he would be able to sit down at the right hand of the Father forever. Now we need to move on then to the next part of the offering that we haven't yet discussed. And the next thing that we see that's, that's in this offering is salt. And salt stands for a preserved life. And I'd like to say first that that it's really a shame that so many people read the Bible and they just go over the words and they have no idea what it means. In the 13th verse, it begins this way, And every oblation of thy meat offering... You ever thought about that word oblation? What in the world does that mean? What's he talking about when he says an oblation? Now, I mentioned before that this is a word that has a New Testament connection. Uh, We read how... Uh, we have read how Jesus used that in Mark 7 verse 11 and we saw it in the very first chapter when this word is just translated as offering and in Mark 7:11 it shows up when Jesus said but ye say if a man shall say to his father or mother it is corban that is to say a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me he shall be free Korban is the same word as oblation, and it means a gift that's brought near to the altar. It's a present that's made. So when you're reading these things, you want to make sure that you understand the words that are being used. And I think it's very sad that modern translations eliminate this word, which is really kind of strange to me because why would you eliminate oblation in Leviticus and yet you retain the word korban in Mark? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It's exactly the same word. Why eliminate one one place and not the other? But it goes on and it says, uh, And every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt, neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. In just a few minutes we're going to talk about leaven. Salt is contrasted to leaven. These are opposites in their portrayals of Christ's life. Salt preserves. Salt is used to prolong and to keep from spoiling. And it's very interesting how that salt was used in, in, uh, to signify the enduring nature of a promise. A covenant that was to last forever was a covenant that was sealed with salt. In Second Chronicles 13 verse 5 It says, "Ought ye not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom over Israel to David forever, even to him and to his sons by a covenant of salt?" That scripture is um, that spoken by Abijah, who went to war against Jeroboam. Uh, The true kings of Israel are described as those who are descended from David. So Jeroboam was a usurper. Abijah, who was king of of, uh, Judah at that time. Uh, was at war with Jeroboam, and Jeroboam, this usurper, was outside of the lineage of David. And God says that a descendant would sit on David's throne forever, and God sealed that with a covenant of salt. And so the salt represents the endurance of the promise in the sacrifice. It's perpetual. uh, That Christ is an everlasting sacrifice, who is Savior, Lord, and King forever. So the salt represents longevity. What did Israel think when they said, well, God says, you salt in this grain offering? Well, this is what they would think about. They would think about the covenant that God had made with them. and not a covenant of David because David's covenant hadn't been given yet. But they're talking about or would recognize this as a covenant in the commandments. That if they kept God's commandments that God would, in a grain offering, that God would send rain for their grain. They would always have the seed time and the harvest as long as they were faithful to God. Now, you think back on the discussion that we had when we first started the meal offering, that we talked about how that raising crop uh, farming in Egypt was different than it was in Canaan. And that's because the, the Israelites lived in the uh, Nile Delta in the land of Goshen. And water wasn't really an issue there because you have the Delta, you have... The Egyptians who are very, very good at irrigation, so raising a crop's not a not a difficult thing. In fact we saw the scriptures it's almost like just kicking your feet in the in the ground, you could get something to grow. But when they came into Canaan things were different. They they were dependent upon rain and they would plant not knowing when the rain would come. And so they would have to trust God that if that He was faithful, that He would send the rain. If they brought their first fruits that God would send the latter rain and God would make sure their crops would continue to grow. So the salt in this offering reminds them of that covenant. But there is a lot more that we see in it because of all the information that we have in which we can compare this to the eternal purpose that God has in Christ. That there is a covenant in Christ that God never repents of. God will not change His mind about this. There is an everlasting covenant that God established with His Son, and He sealed it, as it were, with salt. And we're the ones that receive the benefit of that covenant. The Father elected His own, and He sent the Son to redeem them. Now, just stop and think about that for a minute. Think about this. How could Jesus die for anyone who is not redeemed? Is the covenant of salt worthless? Is there a covenant to redeem all, and yet all are not redeemed or finally redeemed? I mean, even in the grain offering, we can see that the doctrines of grace come to light. This covenant is real, and the covenant is effectual. The atonement is definite. The covenant is never partially fulfilled. No, all that Christ died for are redeemed. And then further, salt is a preservative. For thousands of years, salt was used to preserve meat, uh, ancient mariners used to salt down their meat when they put it on their vessels and made their long jo- uh, uh, journeys, and their meat was preserved. So the salt then stands for endurance. It, it lasts. It doesn't allow corruption. And that's the way that the life of Christ was. There wasn't any corruption in it. He was preserved in his life and in his death from corruption. And, and here's an interesting note, I think, for you. Um, when an Israelite touched a dead body... There was a purification rite that they had to go through before they could be clean. Uh, Before they could offer their sacrifices, they had to go through the purification, and so they had to stay outside of the camp. Seven days it took to purify them before they would be ready to come back into the camp to make their sacrifices. And by the time that Jesus came, the the countryside was literally filled with graves. I mean, they're everywhere. Uh, The Israelites had been in the land for 1,500 years when Christ came. And so there are these many graves. And when people would travel long distances from their homes to go to Jerusalem for the feast days, especially the time of Passover, that they would encounter these graves that are in the countryside. And there was always the danger that they might touch one of those graves. And according to the law, if they touched the grave, they would be defiled. And so they would be on these long, long journeys going to Jerusalem for Passover. Inadvertently, they'd stumble over a grave. And now they've got to go through a purification, right? for seven days, which means they would miss, miss the Passover. So what did they do? Well, this is the reason that they whitewashed tombs. It was in order to make them visible. This is Jesus' reference in Matthew 23:27 to whitewash sepulchres. And he said, the scribes and the Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs, that they look good outwardly, but they are defiling. Inside, they're full of dead men's bones. And the point that I want to make about this is that because in life and death, Jesus saw no corruption, that no one who was involved with the body of Christ had to go through a purification rite. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, the women that came to the tomb, Uh, those that assisted with the preparation of the body, the disciples, Peter and John, who came and went into the tomb, looked inside, went inside, and saw that there was no body there. Never does the Bible say they had to go through a purification rite because they had come in contact with the dead. And that's because there is no decay in Christ. Acts 2.26, Peter quotes the words of David, "...therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad." Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, that is, in the grave, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Verse 31, he seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. And there's another use for salt. That's for purification. When a woman... Had a baby, she needed to go through a purification process, and the baby that was born in the the fluids uh, of that birthing process had to go through a purification rite as well now this This interesting practice of purifying a baby is seen in ezekiel sixteen verse four and here it 's used metaphorically where uh, the writer Ezekiel is talking about, and God is speaking about Israel. But it's metaphorical, but it explains that there is this purification right? It says, And as for thy nativity, in the day that thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. So this is what they did with the baby. They rubbed it with a salt solution. And that was to purify the baby from corruption. And then another interesting reference to this is uh, by the apostle Paul... When he said that Christians ought not to be corrupt in their speech. We use the verse this morning in Colossians 4, verse 6. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. And so in the meal offering, we see Jesus is the preserved, incorruptible Son of God. His life is everlasting, the promises that he makes are a sure covenant that are made with salt. And we note this also, that those that are in Christ, because he is incorrupt, those that are in Christ will not see corruption in heaven, that we will be raised to have a glorified body where there is no longer any corruption. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-two and 43, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Jesus was incorruptible, which means there is nothing in this sacrifice that represents corruption. But we're more familiar with the opposite symbol. Maybe we don't know so much about salt, but we do know something about this next one. The opposite of it is leaven. And the fifth part here is that there is no leaven in this sacrifice. That stands that Christ stands for that Christ has an incorrupt life. No offering of this type can be made with leaven. There is no offering that can be made without salt, and there's none of this type that's made with leaven. Now, I need to qualify that with the Scriptures, and that is that no burnt offering is made with leaven. And I'll come back to that in just a minute. But first, we need to see wh- what does leaven represent? Well, we see leaven mentioned in the scriptures before this, but this is the first time that leaven is seen as a prohibition for this particular purpose. In Exodus chapter 12, before the Passover, the Israelites were told to get the leaven out of their houses, and they were not to make any bread with leaven, and that was for the purpose of reminding them of their hasty departure from Egypt. And so they practiced this throughout their generations that they they ate the Passover with their shoes on as if they're in a hurry. They've got to get out. They can't let their bread rise, and so they made unleavened bread. Later, leaven became associated with sin. Up to that point, I mean, what they did in the Passover originally had nothing at all to do with sin. Leaven in the Passover originally doesn't talk about sin. It's all about that hastiness about getting out of Egypt. But later, leaven came to stand for sin. And Jesus made a connection to that when he warned the disciples that they were to beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he meant, stay away from their sins. Don't get involved in their corruption. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that the church is to purge out the old leaven. He's talking about sin in the church, but specifically... He's talking about a reference to the Lord's Supper and unleavened bread, that we are not to be corrupted as Christ was not corrupted. So leaven is a type of sin. This is why we eat unleavened bread in the Lord's Supper today, because it represents the sinless body of Christ. Now we'll back up to the oil for just a minute. The oil symbolized the Holy Spirit in the anointed life of Christ. And so, if an Israelite was to bring a leavened cake, if he brought a leavened piece of bread to offer as a sacrifice, there would never be enough oil that he could put on it to make it acceptable. I mean, he could, he could douse it in oil, he can soak it in oil, he can drown it in oil. But an offering that's brought with leaven in it is not going to be accepted by God. Likewise, Christ couldn't have any sin. He could never be an acceptable sacrifice, no matter what else he did, no matter how much the Holy Spirit was in him, if there was any sin in him. Because one sin is a disqualifying sin. A sinner can't pay for the sins of another sinner. So any sin in Christ disqualifies him, and so if sin infected him, the Holy Spirit could not counter that effect. And what that does is to destroy the Savior. Sin can't be found in God. Now, let me return for just a minute to the earlier statement. There is no leaven in offerings that are burnt. Verse 11 says, No grain offering that's burnt can contain leaven. Now, let's pay attention because we have a very fine distinction and we have something different that's said in Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23, verse 17, Ye shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two tenths deals, they shall be of fine flour. They shall be bacon with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. Then verse twenty, and the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering before the Lord, with the two lambs they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. So here we see there are loaves that are baked with leaven, and these are wave loaves. What are wave loaves? What's a wave offering? Well, a wave offering, and you'll also see this in the scripture, a heave offering. These are very similar. They're not separate offerings that are made by themselves, but they're part of other offerings. And the wave offering represents the portion that's saved for the priest. They wave it with a motion that's made with their hands. So they would stand before the altar and they would take the offering and they would just hold it up and they would go like this. And that's a wave offering. That's an acknowledgment of God. It's not giving this portion to God, but an acknowledgment that it comes from God. And so the wave offering is this. The heave offering is when they thrust their arms upwards towards God. And that is also a representation that God is the cause of the offering, and we recognize God, but this part of the offering is not for God. It's actually for the priest. So the wave offering, as I said, that's wave from side to side. And in Leviticus 23, what this is describing is the offering at Pentecost. And Pentecost is a grain offering. It's the offering of the harvest. And so the offering was waved before the Lord, but this part of the offering is not burnt. And so this offering can be leavened. And that was to signify that although we are God's children, and we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we have the Holy Spirit in us, still we also have the remnants of sin. That we can come before God, even with that sin nature, having the remnants of sin in us, we are leavened, but we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we are sinners, and we are recognized by God when we come to Him, even though we still have that sinful nature. later on, we're going to talk about one of the offerings that deals with the sinful nature. Uh, But this is why this can be done. This is why leaven is allowed in this offering. Now, in this life, the Holy Spirit does not counteract the effect of the sinful nature in this, in this way, that is, to eradicate it. In this life, we're never going to be entirely sanctified. If you're in the fundamentals class, you know when the believer is eternally sanctified. There is a doctrine for that, there is a term for that, and what is it? Fundamentals? Glorification. That's the doctrine of glorification. That is the entire sanctification so we're entirely sanctified when we receive the glorified body. But until then, we have this constant struggle with sin every day. The same as what Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. And we struggle with it, but we thank God that the final victory of it is coming. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, and 57. The sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this, we see that the meal offering is primarily intended for man. That is, that God is acknowledged in it. God is the perfecter of our faith. A part of the offering is consumed. A part of it goes to God. It's burned and goes to God. That part can have no leaven. Now, it also mentions in this text that uh, as the meal offering is given, there is no leaven mentioned here. But we do see in, the, in, in Pentecost, in that portion of a grain offering, there can be leaven offered in that type of grain offering. I'll show you that in just a minute. Now, finally, in this symbolism of different elements there, we have the mention of honey in verse number 11. No meat offering which ye shall bring unto the Lord shall be made with leaven, for ye shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering of the Lord made by fire. So we have no honey. No honey stands for the austere life of Christ. Leaven relates to corruption, Honey also relates to corruption. Now, Honey's sweet. Honey's a wonderful food. It was prized by the Israelites, as it is by us, for natural sweetness. But honey's not like frankincense. When you burn frankincense, it gives off uh, this this sweet smell, the sweet odor. But when honey is burned, it breaks down. It, It disintegrates. And there are several applications that can be made concerning prohibition of honey. And the first that I think of is... When people come to Christ and they're very excited about their faith and they're thinking about all that they perceive will happen in their lives, all the good things that will happen. And so they're gung ho. People are gung ho when they first receive Christ. And as we say, you know, they're ready to go out and charge hell with a water pistol. I mean, they're ready. They'll take on anything. They they've got they've got the Lord. And but soon they find out that the Christian life is not as easy as they thought it would be. And so the problems come, and they thought, well, what we should be able to do is just conquer everything. It happens immediately, I and mean, it shouldn't be a problem for us. But as soon as that sweetness of Christianity fades into the problems of fiery trials, now it's not so good anymore. And so they start to break down. Some of them question their salvation. And they will, they'll blame God because they thought, this is not supposed to be this hard. And they're not mature yet, and, and they can't handle, they can't face what comes at them. And the sad part of this is, too, that there are many of them that have not actually made true professions of faith because what they were looking for was the solution to a problem. They have a problem in their life and they've been convinced somehow that if they will just believe in Christ, that all problems go away. It fixes the thing that's wrong with me. And they find out, no, a lot of things that are wrong with you, God teaches you how to live with them, not how to get rid of them. Now, like the parable of the sower, they're the seed that springs up very quickly in shallow soil, but as soon as the sun is up, they wither and they die. Then we might also see in honey the, the fleeting pleasures of sin, that there's always a measure of sweetness in sin. I mean, that's what entices you to do it, right? I mean, this is why you sin, it... it, it feels good at the time. This is the thing that you want to do, but you find out later sin is no good for you. Sin will take you down. The sweetness of it fades away, and it's devastating. Moses realized the pleasures of sin were fleeting, that Egypt was sweet until it wasn't. In Hebrews eleven twenty four and 25, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. I remember Satan tempted Jesus with the pleasures of sin. So you're hungry? Then why not turn these stones into bread? You know, I, I, I remember when I was preaching on that, on, on that in, the, uh, in Matthew chapter 4 years and years ago about the Michael Jackson song, when he sings about this, about how Christ turned stones into bread. Do you remember that line? He says, Christ turned stones into bread. Well, you're wrong, Michael Jackson. That's probably why you're in hell right now, because he didn't turn stones into bread. He resisted the temptation. Look up the line sometime. But anyway, this is what Satan did. He comes and he tempts Jesus with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those things are good to satisfy the hungry for a while, that is the things of the world satisfy you for a while, but it doesn't last. It, it goes away. Like honey, when it's burned, there is no sweetness in the end. And then there's another, One, maybe one more application when I think of the life of Christ, that no honey in the offering says that there are no frills in Christ's life, that it is truly an austere life. In the parable of the sower, Jesus said, And that which fell among thorns are they which when they heard go forth and are choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. The pleasures of life were of no benefit to Christ. He never sought riches. Born in a feed trough, had no home to call his own. He wanted none of that, but he forsook the world and put his trust in God. Psalmist reflects that in Psalm 36. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. So there's no honey. His life was a life... Of self-denial. This is what he said. Deny self. And he commanded it. And he lived that way. So these are the symbols in the offering. I think think it's worth our time to find Christ in them. And to meditate on what this offering shows. Now let's just finish the meal offering with a final observation. And this is the supply of the offering. The offering is not completely burnt. Burnt because the priests were to take some of this offering for their food. This is one of the offerings that supplied the support for the ministry of Israel's worship. The burnt portion is the portion given directly to God. That shows devotion to him. But the major portion of this offering is not burnt. And this shows uh, a picture of Christ's duty towards man. Verse 3 says, And the remnant of the meat offering shall be Aaron's and his son's. It is the thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord made by fire. So what do we learn from the supply of the priest? Well, we learn, first of all, about our communion with Christ's life, that we share in the life of Christ. So this this offering, part of it's given back. It's given back to the priest, and they share in in the offering. So that shows that we share in Christ's life. Now, if you'll turn to John chapter 6, if you would, uh, here we see the grain offering is brought to life in Jesus' teachings, where he shows us a communion, uh, how we commune with him. In John chapter 6, in verse number 53, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day." For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. Now what Christ is telling us there, spiritually, he is our meal that Christ is the nourishment of our souls in every way Christ satisfies what the hungry soul needs. And he says that when you come to him, you'll never hunger and you'll never thirst. Well, this type of offering is important for the priests because they didn't work at secular jobs. Uh, they They weren't given an inheritance in the land. Instead, they are completely dependent upon God for their support or we might say, on the people for their support in bringing these sacrifices to God. God allows them to have a part of the sacrifice. And so if Israel is faithful to always bring these sacrifices, then the priests are abundantly supplied. In the New Testament era, Paul used that as an example for pastors, that the people are to support the pastor and provide for him abundantly. And I have to mention that because it's here in Leviticus. This is the place that Paul draws from for that teaching. But uh, rather than to deal with that aspect of it, because I beat you over the head with that so many times recently, that we're going to look at another focus here. And uh, this is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, where he says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That verse is written to every believer, not just the pastors. Each of you, the Word of God says, is a priest of Jesus Christ. And so what he does for you is provide for you just as he did the priest in Israel. In him is found every good thing that you need. We feast on the richness of God's grace. And those riches, when we talk about that, that's not just an ethereal thing. No, this, this, is, this is concrete, this is substantial. It includes the daily provisions of the food that you put on your table. It includes the clothes that you wear on your body, and the house in which you live. All of that is supplied by God. But we notice something else here, and, and I think this is just almost mind-blowing as we see the other meaning, that when this offering was given, there isn't anything that's left over to the one who offers it. He gets nothing back from it. Some of it goes to God, the rest of it goes to the priest. Now, what we want to do here is to see ourselves as the offerer and not as the priest. We are priests unto God, but let's look at ourselves as an offerer for just a minute. What happens if you make your life a living sacrifice for Jesus Christ? What happens when you yield everything that you are, body, soul, and spirit to God? What happens if you love Him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your strength as He commands? If you die to Him, then what's left of you? Now, you don't want to make that more complicated than it is. The answer is nothing. If you give all to Him, then there's nothing left of you. And that's what He demands, to receive all spiritual blessings in Him. You give up everything that you can see to receive these eternal blessings that you can't see. And so this, doing that for Christ, that is an offering of faith, just like this grain offering is an offering of faith for Israel. They hope to receive a future harvest. And we do exactly the same thing. When we give everything to Christ, we expect to receive a future harvest. That's the spiritual rewards that God gives. And then finally, the supply is our satisfaction with Christ's life. So we have to ask the question Is there anybody who gives everything to Christ who is sent away empty? Isaiah 12, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy, ye shall draw water out of the wells of salvation. Isaiah 55, verse 1, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come by wine and milk without money and without price. Now lastly, let's turn to Leviticus chapter six, and these are further instructions in the grain offering. Verse number sixteen of Leviticus chapter six. And the remainder thereof shall Aaron and his sons eat, with unleavened bread, shall it be eaten in the holy place in the court of the tabernacle of the congregation they Shall eat it. The bread must be eaten by the priest in the holy place. They are not to take this out of that consecrated place. It's not to be eaten in places of defilement. This tells us that there is no peace and there is no satisfaction in Christ if we are filled with the leaven and the honey of this world. That you are not going to be happy and you will not be satisfied in Christ until you separate yourself. From the world. And so the person who says, I'm in Christ, and yet he's satisfied with a life of sin, he doesn't know Christ. Christ is the Lord, and he is the Lord obeyed, or he is not Lord. An old song says, I'm satisfied, I'm satisfied, I'm satisfied with Jesus. But the question comes to me as I think of Calvary, is my master satisfied with me? So I never worry about whether Christ can satisfy. That's never the question. The question is always, is he satisfied with me? And the question for you, is he satisfied with you? And this grain offering shows Christ is everything, that he will satisfy you. All that remains is will you satisfy him? So we close on this final note, and and I want to return for just a moment here to that offering on Pentecost made with leaven. These kinds of things confuse us because we're consistently... We always hear there's no leaven, no leaven, no leaven. And all of a sudden we say, well, here's an offering made with leaven. So how is it that God can accept an offering that's made with leaven? Well, here's the reason for it. That that's not the only offering that was made on Pentecost. Because piled on top of this offering, there's a burnt offering that's made. There's the meat offering that's made. There's the burnt, I said the burnt offering, there's peace offering that's made, there's a sin offering that goes with it, and just on to all five offerings. And this tells us that before we ever come to God as imperfect people, if we come that way with just the leaven, then we would never stand. Though we have the Holy Spirit, we're not going to stand without the offering of Christ. That He's everything for righteousness with God. And so with that, Offering of leaven is the only one that man makes. What God would do is cast off that offer with a blast of fire out of his nostrils. So we must have Christ. We must have Christ perfect in deity, perfect in humanity, perfect in all ways, because he is our righteousness. There are too many verses on that one. I know you're, you're probably ready to go home, so let me give you one more cap off the end of the study. First Corinthians 1 30 and 31. But of him Are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the great symbols that are seen in this offering. How Our heart rejoices, Lord, to to see you in these ways in the Old Testament, ways that we couldn't know unless we just take time to dig out, to mine the depths of your word, to see what you have for us there. Help us, Lord, to preach Christ, to always preach Christ. That's the main emphasis of everything that we do in this church, to uphold and glorify your name, made into us wisdom, redemption, sanctification, all these things, Lord, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
0: dot